the Colby Cast, episode 34. Glad you could join us. In today's conversation, Bonnie is joined by Dr. Carol Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds is known for many things, not least of which is her staunch advocation of homeschooling. After a career as a professor at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Professor Carroll moved to a ranch and began creating fine arts courses for students and adults. She also began, as she says in this episode, her real education. According to Dr. Reynolds, you cannot pull the arts apart. You cannot study the arts in isolation. Her story is a fascinating one, full of encouragement and inspiration. Enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom, liturgical musician, podcast fanatic, heavy library user, and Colby parent ambassador. I have two lads and two lasses. The youngest is in fifth grade, the eldest is in 10th, and this is our fourth year homeschooling with Colby. It is my great pleasure to speak with you today, Professor Kelly. Welcome to the Colby cast. Thank you. I'm so glad you asked me to join you. And I have to tell you, I have donned my concert black today to, in the honor of this conversation with you. Oh, <laughs> no. I've been so looking forward to it. Um, we are going to talk today about arts education in the homeschool setting, music history, arts appreciation, incorporating the arts, helping parents feel more confident, integrating the study of the arts into their homeschools. I think you are the perfect person to speak on this. Will you tell us about yourself, please? Okay, well, um, I've had a lot of incarnations in my life that have been uh, surprising to me, as I'm sure many of the parents listening to this, you certainly, in many cases, did not expect to be doing what you're doing uh, many times over, right? And especially now in these very interesting times. Um, But I I was born in Roanoke, Virginia, and didn't go anywhere for a very long time, dreamed of a life that would take me out of my little street. And uh, boy, did I ever end up getting it, as it turned out. Uh, I was raised as a pretty serious pianist with a mother who was the prime pushing force in my life back when, like most children, I would have resented it. And quite frankly, she was the only mom in our circle who had the kind of standards she had. She was tough. She was coming out of an immigrant background, New York, you know, very difficult, impoverished first-generation American, and let me tell you, I was slammed as a child. And, and of course, now I understand exactly what she was doing. I understood it not that many years later, but it was hard because I think when a parent has some, a very high ideal uh, then and even now, children often take a while to catch up, right? But eventually I went and got degrees in music and then moved into musicology. My passion since junior high school was things Russian. I sort of fell in love with Russian culture as a seventh grader for a very peculiar reason, a crush on a cousin, believe it or not, who could speak Russian. It was college student. So it doesn't take much at that age to sort of get you excited about something, right, and start a direction. And that ultimately led me to do doctoral work and apply for grants in the Soviet Union in the 1981 is when all that started. I was at Leningrad Conservatory under the Soviet system, Brezhnev, that whole world that, let me tell you, it was one, <laughs> that was my first trip anywhere. Go think of that, you know. Uh-huh. Not the best way to start, but boy, did we start. And then I ended up uh, finishing those degrees, living in Germany, got the position at SMU in Dallas, spent a long time there as a music history professor, sort of retired early in 2006 because we got a ranch, moved out to the country, raised goats, got some cows, and had a decade out in a very different world where I really got my education. You know what I mean? I found out I knew virtually nothing about what I was doing, and boy, did I need lessons. And then now we have moved in the last couple of years to North Carolina, doing what a lot of people in my generation are doing to get closer to family. Um, Miss Texas never wanted to leave that part of the country once I got there, but we're very nicely situated here in North Carolina, not far from a lot of the people who use your Colby curriculum. So that part's really very nice. Fantastic. This is fascinating to me. Hearing about your tenure as a professor and a lecturer for arts organizations all these many years and and your area of Russian specialization. You've done a lot with the Dallas area musical arts organizations. And now this uh, path you've been on through this winding road is so fascinating to me. As by way of background, my eldest son and I did your Discovering Music program. 
as um, an arts elective, I, and I even I have feel kind of squeaky about using that word elective. But as as the art study, we have done your discovering music course, and it was such an, a reawakening for me of my area of study as as a as a student myself with a music background. It was pure delight to to travel through it with him, and I'm looking forward to doing that when my younger children get a little older, and Aww. so. To be able to hear about how that came to be and how you have come to where you are now developing so much curriculum for homeschooling families, what you have seen as a professor of homeschoolers and by way of encouragement to homeschoolers. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can address some of those things today and get some of your insights and encouragement. Cool. So the Discovering Music program is for the high school students to fulfill arts requirements for their high school diplomas. And so now this year, Colby also offers drawing and painting, but for the musical arts, this is the program. And it is wonderful. It is, when we launched into it, immediately I was taken back to my days as a music major, thinking about my music history classes and the music literature classes offered to those who were sort of on a shorter course of music study, who perhaps were not music majors, they were minors or or whatever. And, and perhaps they had some expectation and then they got into music literature and thought, oh, whoa, this is a lot more than I thought it was, and they were the better for it having gone through it. So if you can take me back to the development of Discovering Music, now you have quite an array of offerings that I'm looking forward to delving more into, but will you take me back to Discovering Music and how that kind of came to be? Well, you know, it, it is funny because I was raised in very traditional music history, um, which comes to us, that whole training from Europe with the people who would have been my professors, who would have been in many cases um, people who had fled the Second World War and come to the United States in, in, as young students maybe or as proficient artists in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. So I got that tradition in extraordinary depth. And um, and that is the way to teach and use that word, that problematic word, elective. But, you know, it, nobody would use that word from a European standpoint, not not because things in Europe are great or better. I'm not saying that point, although there's some wonderful things, but there is not this artificial division in our passions and our studies the way we have it here, we, the way we've developed it here in the throughout the 20th century. So the idea that you would do the arts meant that you would do everything. You can't possibly study an opera unless you know the literature, unless you know the period it was written, the theater, to understand under what monarchy is it Habsburg theater? We talking about the Bourbons or the Tudors or the, you know, the, the Louis XIV crowd or what are we doing here? And how does that rank in terms of the aesthetics and the philosophy and the visual and the dance and the, you know, you cannot pull apart the arts. And of course, that's what slams people in the situation you were talking about when they say, oh, we'll take an easy class. We'll take art history. We'll take music history. If it's taught at all properly, they find out very quickly that they're not in some elective, but indeed something that, that in many cases with homeschoolers, our courses are used as straight history courses. In fact, they're listed in certain academies as history courses um, because you cannot study arts in an isolation. And, and I think you found that out quite nicely, didn't you? Oh, yes. I think it speaks right to this surprise we have when we think about the typical. I don't have a classical education per se. However, I was raised in a time where the education that was offered then is vastly different than what's offered now, I think. That meaning... I got a lot of the arts growing up in my schooling. However, there was still that mindset of these are your core classes, these are your electives, which I think classical education, that's that's a totally different mindset. So I'm grateful for it. And, and I'm also grateful for the time period in which I was, right? So that I do have at least this sort of uh, reference point is not quite the paradigm shift that I think might be the case for others. So I that's think true. So. And I do like to tell the story of how Discovering Music started, because I came to 19, in 1985 to SMU as a music history professor, and Dallas was a hot dog city. It's a real hot dog city now. I mean, it, it was fabulous. And suddenly, you know, I was thrown into all kinds of opportunities. That's Texas for you, you know. I mean, you can just mm -hmm. jump into so many things. And suddenly I was working yeah. with the Dallas Symphony and the opera and all of these things. And it was I, I assumed I would stay there till I keeled over in the classroom. That was my intention. <laughs> I loved it. I had wonderful music majors, a beautiful master's program, an artist certificate program, loads of international students working with taking tour groups to Russia from the Dallas Opera. You know, just it was a blast. Um, and if we hadn't bought that goat ranch and moved and 
2006 out to the country, I'd probably still be in that second floor office, quite frankly. Um, but that changed a lot of things. But during that time, it was really about the 90s that I began seeing kids in my classroom that were really quite good. Um, they they were because by the 90s, public schools in many places, I mean, Texas still has a lot of really good systems, but you began to have to not spend your class on 19th century romanticism discussing which novels uh, influence which opera composers in which way, but rather you had to spend a full lecture explaining the importance of the 19th century novel since no one had read them, you know, anymore. So you had to just do more and more remedial work. But my, there was a group of kids who sort of knew, and very much knew. When I would talk about Dumas, or I would talk about Bronte, or I'd talk about Dostoevsky, they nodded. And when I would talk about chronology, they nodded. And I'd read their papers and their punctuation and their grammar and their syntax and their ideas were very good. And I remember finally, and this was a real big moment. I remember, I mean, to the day, the young lady involved, she was a violinist and the actress who was now a homeschool mom, I, I might add, by the way, uh, with I think about four four children probably and has done amazing things in her life. But she then was a, probably a junior. And I finally said to her, I said, Allison, where did you go to high school? Because her work was so good. And I was saving papers like hers for my reward after grading the stack, you know? Then I'd take those, you know, that's what teachers do. They save, the, either they save the really bad ones or the really good ones. I like to save the really good ones. And you know, after a while. And so I said to her, where did you go to high school? You know, and she whispered, I was homeschooled. She looked at her feet. And see, this is still the 90s, late 90s. And people were shy about this, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, you were what? And then she said it a little louder. I said, homeschooled. And I have the paradigm of the 50s, the 1950s, right? Where if a child was ill, the teacher came to the house, right? And back in a long okay. time. And I said, well, you look, you look healthy, which, of course, was a really <laughs> dumb thing to say. You know? And she started laughing. She said, you don't know what this is, Dr. Reynolds, do you? And I said, I have no idea. And she sat down and chapter and verse explained to me what, what had been involved, how it had been done the role of her mother, the role of various curriculum. And and I was floored. I was floored. And then she and ultimately quite a few others over the next years, as I began to identify my extraordinarily good homeschooled students. And remember, I'm teaching talented kids in a music program. You don't have dummies in music in big music schools. They're weeded right. out. Right. These were the cream of the crop in most cases. And they began saying there's no serious curriculum in the fine arts at that point. And that really was the impetus for me to create Discovering Music. And I go through all that because it just shows a lot of things. I think it shows how you don't know what's around the corner for as an adult. I could have never predicted that we would, you know, that I would end up, you know, raising goats and then ultimately spending this whole last 10, 12 years developing these courses, all from a conversation with a young lady whose abilities so impressed me. Um, and she was such a witness both to her her education in, within homeschooling, but to the devotion of a family that made sure she got that education. See, that's that's behind all this is the moms. I'm sorry. It just is, you know, the moms, the dads, the grannies, the aunties, the neighbors, the church. That's what creates this this child who has a brain and can use it. That's wonderful. God creates the brain in that child, but you know, you don't yes, to see it cultivated, nurtured and brought to this and, and um, offered this rich environment, offered these opportunities and the careful tending that allowed her to flourish as she did to see those students distinguished among the high level you already had. That speaks a lot to, I think what we hope as homeschooling parents, we hear a lot of voices saying otherwise that uh -huh. that this is you know, that we're doing a disservice or somehow we are missing out or we're gonna have big gaps or whatever. But then we hear these stories like you're telling that <laughs> frankly make me quite hopeful and, and give me a lot of inspiration and motivation to keep going how we're going. So okay. thank you for that. And 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 I love hearing stories like these. So now you have professorcarol.com, many, many offerings. It's a veritable feast of, of riches that you offer on that website. So many courses, some of which we are enjoying, many others I'm looking forward to delving into. You are an instructor for Homeschool Connections. You write for Memoria Press and you teach for adults there as well now, correct? Yeah, the Memorial College, I started, I started being involved with that this year. In fact, I, I do a weekly blog on arts and culture and I'm, I wrote about those 
I, I can't call them students, they're participants in an article called Students Older Than Average, which used to be an acronym in the 80s when, when you began to have a lot more adults, indeed my own mom going back to uh, school. So I try to write this, what's on my mind because it's such a glorious thing to teach adults, you know, especially the kind of adults who are drawn to what you are doing, what people do at places like Searcy and Memoria and IEW and uh, clearly the Colby parents, you know, these are not just your average mom and dad. I mean, they may feel that way and they may feel, and confidence is always a problem. You know, you, I mean, struggling with confidence. I mean, I think sometimes that's a, I don't know if I could, I'm not going to get off on too much of this, but you know, sometimes if, if you allow me to be good old Baptist phraseology, you know, it's the, it's the devil working in us to make us think that we can't really do these things or not do them well enough, you know? So I think one of the marvelous things about a community like within the Colby family that you have and in these other uh, institutions and these other academies, these other groups is that we support each other. And when people and people do get that and you do get tired and you can't get the laundry done and there's no dinner and nobody can find a, de- a pencil that's sharpened. And you know, it, those are the details. They say the devil's in the details. So let's take that literally, you know, that, that tend to undo the greater good. But if I can say anything and I say I do a lot of conference speaking, as you know, uh, I say, look, on your worst day, moms. Take your, well, maybe not your very worst day, but like your second worst day, you know, your worst day. You've already done these basic things with your children, most likely at least one of them. You've read to them. You have participated in some kind of music or art or creativity, or you've been outdoors and spent 45 minutes, you know, whether it's examining leaves or planting petunias or or picking apples or or, or pruning it. You know, you've done something with the the world around us. You've you've baked, you've cooked, you've sent them down to sort laundry. You've you those things in addition to reading Dante and you know doing your multiplication. They're all part of a, of, a, of an organic whole for your family. And that is how people used to be brought up. There were no, there's no subjects at home, are there? <laughs> it's just life and learning. Yes, the school of life. That's so true. It, this has come up on episodes before about the opportunity that homeschool offers us to live the school of life. All the things that go into running a household, just living life with the family, what that will look like for the children, those who are children now what they will expect of their adult lives, that they don't have that glimpse when they are away from the house all day in school and all the things happen as if by magic (laughs) that someone has done at home while they've been away. They see that happening and they hopefully participate in that as well. So this is going to be an episode to bookmark and come back and play as a pep talk when we're having a tough day. (laughs) I know that I will come back and listen to this encouragement you're offering. There's a wonderful blog post on the Colby website by Mrs. Muth, one of the founders of Colby, Speaking to that same discouragement that Satan will try to throw our way, discouragement, get behind me, it's called. And these two pair very nicely together. So when we're having a tough time, we're going to cue these up. So can you speak to the general gist and benefits of classical education? Many of us are new to homeschooling this year or within the past few years. Some of us might be considered emergency homeschoolers or even just new, new homeschoolers for whom the leap was made very quickly, and the whole idea of classical education is a bit fuzzy. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, it, I would, I'll do my best. You know, I'm, I'm on panels a lot. On, we have things called the, the Classical Consortium with an uh, extraordinary group of speakers, uh, Andrew Pudawa and Chris Perrin, Martin Cothran, Andrew Kern, and I sort of have been this quintet with sometimes guests on this panel. And we've been doing this now for about seven years, eight years in a lot of places and last year virtually quite a bit. And it, I just always love it because these are all colleagues. In fact, I would say across the homeschool world, colleagues that I so admire and enjoy. And it's again, just to not get all mushy about it, but the collegiality that I find within this world is notably more, what is the word I should use, more encouraging, inspiring, and satisfying than sometimes within the academic ivy, ivory tower. You know, you've come out of, of colleges and university. And it, there's such a difference, especially these days, to have the kind of uh, beauty and force of everyone being on board. And even though you have competing organizations, everyone is on board for the child. And the parent who, and let's face it, we're really going, when we teach, we're going for you. 
We're going for the parent. Even if you don't have to do anything, because of course we create courses where people say, what do I have to know? What do I have to do? I said, you have to keep the electricity on or at least be able to borrow somebody's extension cord. That's all you have to do. I'll do the rest. I'll do the teaching. You just have to, you know, make sure they have a, a warm place to sit. And But still, you're reaching parents, even if courses are complete in and of themselves. And the, your children, your middle schoolers, your, they don't need the any babysitting by an adult particularly. Nonetheless, the parents are absorbing all of this learning and it is the parents response or if it's the case of an uncle or a grandmother or whoever is the the matriarch of the educational situation it's that response uh, that that gives the child reinforcement structure and energy so you asked about classical education but we talk about these issues and people say well what is classical education the next thing that we're talking about absolutely everything but sometimes it seems in the panels but then somebody will pull us back and we'll say Okay, and, and I love the answers. Martin Coffin gives a great answer. He said, it's the great books, mathematics, Latin, and the arts. He used to he used to leave the arts out. He'd get that in now. <laughs> he always meant to say it. And in a way, it comes down to that. It's mathematics, which if, if you get that core math, right? We're talking about the way in my day, you just, everybody, almost everybody learned it because they did it the old fashioned way. You drilled it and you got it. Now they call it mental math. What other kind of math was it? I don't have any idea. All these reforms <laughs> that I can't even imagine what they were. Supposed to. But the point is you learned it because you had to learn it. And by golly, Ned, you learned it. And then you had it. And from that, you can build according to the child's talent, abilities. Are they going in that kind of a direction or not? You won't know until they get a little older. You get the reading and the love of reading, which starts, as you well know, by being read to. You, you, you read to your child from the first nanosecond, you know. You read to them in the womb. A lot of people sing to sing to them in the womb, dance with them in the womb. You know, they come out very artistic that way, right? But the point being, uh, you get you get an artistic and beauty-linked life uh, exposure, not just because you play records of Mozart, but because you sing melodies and because you're singing hymns and because you have a, a home with beauty, even if you can't have objects of art, you have pretty colors and you find some vase at Goodwill and you stick some pretty, doesn't matter what, you know, the point is you you let your child know, and remember, for little kids are easily pleased, you you, you get great grandma's china out and you bring out those doilies that nobody wants or they're selling for five cents at Goodwill. And suddenly you have beautiful things in your home and crystal and all this stuff that people are trashing and throwing out. Suddenly you have a crystal vase that is a prism when the sun shines through. And if you don't think that's not powerful on a little mind, you better believe it is. You don't need anything more than that. But you, you make it clear that we have this because it's beautiful. And we're doing this because it's beautiful. And we sing this and we look for this and we dance and we make little plays up. And we don't just argue about who's supposed to sort the laundry, but we turn it into a little play. And we say, here, you play the socks and I'll play the shoes, you know, that need to be put away. And why don't you be the towels? And, you know, we can't always be that cheerful. But the point is, that's the arts. Yes, later they're going to read Chekhov and Moliere and Shakespeare. But at a certain point, you what you do with the little ones with cla in a classical approach, at least as I see it, is that you're you're de developing a sense that artistic expression, mathematical expression, the telling and learning of stories, the memorizing and reciting and the joy that children have when they do it. And they almost almost all can do it at levels that floor us if we give them the chance. If we give them a chance, they learn in most cases memory work the way they eat ice cream, you know, and, and I know I, with my grandchildren, I'm so astonished. And then I remember, wait a minute, of course they do the five, six, seven, they can do this, you know, but so if you give them, let's see, what have I said? The mathematical understanding, when that means quarter cup of, and a half a teaspoon, it doesn't just mean homework and a, a worksheet. It means being able to measure and measure a desk and, and calculate, you know, how many, whether this, this bag of apples weighs more than this bag of, I don't know, pairs, all of these things in the whole sense of mathematics so they can build on that. And you give them beauty and you give them music and dance and drama. And then you give them uh, ability to look at architecture when you drive down the road. There's a classical theme that is often not stated. I'm going on and on. I'll try to shorten this. But, you know, you drive down the road. I don't care where you're going. You're going to CVS. You're going to fill the carpet of grass. You just you're passing I don't care where you're passing. You're passing opportunities to analyze architecture for better or worse. So, I mean, the whole thing in classical approach is that you are everything around you, mathematical, artistic, literarily. And then you, as they are ready or even before they're ready, you're reading them great books, whether it's great children's literature, which is key in classical education, key, absolutely key. And fortunately, we know what that is. No mystery there. 
people are more or less agreed on this corpus of classical literature, starting with classical children's literature, which is invaluable, invaluable. And there's so much garbage junk. Can I say that? Yes, garbage junk out there for children's literature, which you, a lot of parents don't know it's not good, but you know, you know, and you, you, you eliminate that or you minimize that and you put the good stuff in front of them and bingo, you put it all in a burlap bag and you roll it around and all of a sudden comes out really and truly a 10, 9, 11, 12 year old child with a good brain, a sense of aesthetics, a, a soul that has been cultivated which you filled with prayer and you filled with liturgy and you filled with doctrine and, and, and with, with understanding and with beauty. I know I'm making it sound easy. It's not easy, but that's also not subjects, is it? And, and, and that's the classical approach. I think, I mean, it's, it's trusting those really three or four cores to do the rest. Wow. That was a long sentence, wasn't it? (laughs) It was fabulous. Fabulous. This is going to be repeat. Listen to it over and over, get it really down deep. This is, it's wonderful. There are a couple of themes that have come up many times in many of our episodes here recently. One being integration of the various areas and beauty being another one of those themes that comes up often, how beauty draws us in into the deeper truths and really nourishes us that way. Dr. Anthony Esselin was on a recent episode of our podcast speaking very similarly about not all books being equal among many other topics. And it's very difficult, I think, when we encounter the idea of at least a reading something. At least a reading. Mm. Well, <laughs> that's, well, let's that's not start. <laughs> we got to start somewhere, yes. And then let's move to what are they reading and what is that? What are you doing with that? And as someone who regularly maxes out my library card, I, I am thrilled to hear you talking about reading together. That's been right up there with our family doings for a long time. But this really helps doing the day-to-day of homeschooling. And we're trying to balance our goal of offering this beautiful synthesis of so many so many aspects of life in, in this beautiful fashion. At the same time, that niggling sense of got to get things done kind of thing, the way you have described it helps really keep going I think you don't know this when you're your age but at a certain point you figure it out you're never going to get it all done so that's a, a there is a bit of liberation a few decades later waiting for you when you recognize that even if you did get it all done somebody's going to come along and undo it in five minutes so what is the point of that <laughs> you know when you're younger and young moms and and people new to this since so many people have suddenly been home with their children and and you know it, it has to have been shocking for so many, maybe some who are listening now, I'm mean, shocking because your rhythm, as you just said so beautifully, children, I mean, when I grew up, totally different world, obviously, but you came home and the house was perfect and moms were at home and dinner was at five. And I was, I never thought there was much to it because I never saw it, you know, and there's no such thing as a homeschool family that doesn't know what's, what's involved with keeping the operation going, especially with larger families. And, and that's why you need cores that, that are, if you do morning prayer, and that nothing's going to shake that, for example, if that's your core. If it's whatever you choose, if it's if it's 15 minutes of hymns between 11 and 11, 15, unless there's a tornado outside, we're doing it. And I have a, I have a friend. She's really been a guru of mine. Her five homeschool children, the oldest is 23 or 24 now. And it's interesting watching them go in direction. She is so organized in my wildest dream. There's no chance in the world, which is one of the reasons I love her. You know, I like to just watch how she does things. But two things come to mind. One thing she alerted me to, many, many things. And and let me stop. I'm, I'm on a rabbit trail. But we need community and we need all of our friends and colleagues, younger and older, to help us learn things that we can't see or we won't hear until Mary Jane says it. And then maybe we hear it. Right. But she she alerted me to two things. One, at that point, my grandchildren, um, whom I've been much more aware of in terms of raising in a classical mode. I missed that first round because it was I didn't even know about it. Remember, mm-hmm. but um, she said, be careful you know, just going to the library or picking up books at the book sale because the pictures in today's children's books are so marvelous. You know, I'm golden books era and you'd have a little and not a lot of illustrations. You don't need illustrations. I mean, you can have no illustrations and have the magnificent experience because the, the pictures are in the child's head. Right. But if you look at children's books today, the illustrations are stunning. 
across the board, stunning in the beautiful paper quality and bindings and far exceeding visually anything I could have ever imagined when I was six or eight or 10. She said, don't be swayed to make sure you know what the texts are saying. Make sure not like, oh, dear, that's bad. Not that. Just make sure. Oh, dear, that's stupid and boring. You know, I mean, you you see these gorgeously illustrated books and then you read them and you go, Ugh, you know, or and and this was interesting. Why? And here's some really terrible grammar. Forget what else is there. You know, but she said, watch out, watch out that you're not so swayed by the visual in these books that you forget to consider, especially for the little ones, consider what's actually the text. I don't know if that's interesting to people or not, but um, it's like listening to a lot of lousy music. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yes, that wariness I have developed after my enthusiasm, oh, it's books. And my 12-year-old daughter as a very young child opening a birthday present, it's books, just the delight in her voice. I can hear her now all these years later. I just love it. And I share that with her. And then I, it's disappointing sometimes to see these beautiful books, but the content in, within them is such a letdown. So it is. It yes. Is. And the same with music. And you can't do it all. And people people think they have to do it all. They have to learn all the... When they, they, well, I have to learn all this, so I can't, so I won't do any of it. You know, that that's a problem, you know, sure. with the arts. I mean, you, oh, yes. a child that has three books that are treasured, you know, is in a better position sometimes if someone's, you know, cascading on their heads. And coming to know a few pieces of music where they matter and they're ingrained in your soul... Uh, of, of fine pieces of music that gives you more than just oh today we'll put the CD out oh let's try the CD I mean art we can't take it in we can't do it all nor can a child and they want to get to be friends with a painting friends with a book of poems or a poem you know they, those are their friends and I think uh, maybe in my era when there was a whole lot less that was easier mm-hmm. fewer but better choices mm-hmm. yes and that's yes. very classical, isn't it? Since, you know, we otherwise we're overwhelmed. I mean, I think as parents, well, I've got to go learn this and do this. And I'm, I'm sure Esalen has spoken about this, you know, oh, this whole idea, too, of, of, of you cannot take it all on. You don't have to take it all on. You have to take, you know, the firm. If you don't go up steps by racing to the top, you know, you, you plant your foot firmly on that bottom step before you take a second step. But that's where parents worry and they worry. Oh boy, do homeschooling parents worry. They worry way more than parents who drop their kids off at school, right? Because it is somebody else's responsibility, right? I definitely can relate to that. Yes. Because it, there is that sense of it's all on me now, which is actually one of, another one of those tricks of the devil, right? That you were yes. referring to earlier to make yes. you think that it's all on you when it's really, really not. And it's such a diversionary tactic. It's one to be wary of as well. Thinking about incorporating, of course, I would love to share and I've tried to share my love of music with my children over the years. I, they hear me play a lot because of my my church job that I have. So they hear a lot of that just as a matter of course, they're sort of immersed in it. At the same time, it I think they think of it as mom's thing, right? It's, it's mom's thing. She's a musician. So when I try to incorporate it into our studies at home, I'm very grateful for your program because it has helped me zero in on where to start. So thinking about music history and fine arts in the homeschool setting, your Discovering Music program and others that you now offer on your website. These are such helps to us. I'm glad. If you want, I could say quickly what some of the other things are because, you know, as much as we love discovering music and it's our signature and it does seem to just continuously meet the need of a lot of people and open up either they can stop there. We're not trying to make music majors and first violinists. We're not doing anything like that. In fact, what we're doing is teaching history and culture through the lens of the arts, you know, that's which, of course, is its own fulfilling thing. But it's been very interesting to go from there and take on, as you were talking about your passions. And of course, I mentioned Russian studies. And then one of our courses on Circle of Scholars is Imperial Russia, which is, of course, I like to recommend to people with from upper middle school to through high school, because teenagers really love other cultures. They love to study China or, you know, they love to study Russian history, Russia. Those things are exciting. And that course goes from the beginnings of the um, written record of in, in Russian Christianization in the ninth century to the Bol- past the Bolshevik Revolution. And look, so clearly it's a history course, but you've got the, the, the literature and the music and the, the dance and the theater and all of the czars and 
you know, we learned Cyrillic in there, a little bit of Cyrillic, so the kids can read the names. It's quite easy, actually. I didn't say we learned Russian, did I? I said we learned the alphabet, and we learned to work with it so they could recognize everything in Cyrillic. But that's been interesting, and, that, and that's the kind of thing that you look at your kid of a certain age, especially the guys, the young guys. We're really very interested in things for boys. I think, you know, we've got a program out. I mean, it's not a, it's not a credit course, but it's a program called Music for Boys that my yeah. husband, who's the other half of all this, I haven't mentioned him, but Hank, who is a musician, um, he was a horn player. He did degrees in composing and in conducting. And his PhD is in music theory. But he also uh, went and became an attorney, copyright law. So, you know, that's a law and music together. And, of course, he does the music theory course, which I believe you said you were taking right now. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, you know, he's very interested in having coming up in the same era as I did when boys had to, you know, sort of defend their love of the arts. And I mean, it was a little easier back then, but because almost everybody studied an instrument in our day. It's not true now. But he really compiled that music for boys. And, you know, he knows because he. He was a boy and he came up and he knows what he loved at the different ages. And, you know, again, the early sacred music course, which was really his impetus. You may know that I work for Smithsonian as a professor on tours ordinarily right now. Of course, everything's canceled, but hopefully it's going to turn back up soon. And I spent up to about a third of the year, particularly in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Danube and Russia, whatever. That's given me an opportunity to do a lot of filming. And sometimes Hank has joined me and all of our courses have a lot of live footage and a lot of other people in there with it. It's not just me. I drag everybody I've never met, knock on doors, call in chips from students who used to be get their papers in late all the time. And now they're conducting major <laughs> orchestras. And I write an email and say, hi, remember me? I did an interview. And there you are. Oh, yes. You know, I mean, I, I, we've just really got a, a glorious band here in these courses who and there's more. Each course has had more of these people. So it's, they're populated with a lot of interesting folks and sh visually very beautiful. And early sacred music going from Temple Times to 1400 is without question our most beautiful course. And it serves as a history course, a religious studies course, an arts or humanities. But it's it. we were so blessed by the people. We had the monks from St. Louis Abbey who anchored us all the way through in the units. Um, I was just trying to think of what else. Our America's artistic legacy. There's another thing that parents have an opportunity particularly and then I'll, I'll stop with my little resume here or a survey but America's artistic legacy is not only not being taught now but hasn't been taught well in a long time that means not just the patriotic history or the formative history but the artistic history American architecture American song American visual art American theater the uh, cultural manifestations our fashions our trends all of that it's a two-semester course and it's a big one and it's a good one um and again, we think, oh, we have to go to France. No, we don't. First of all, all the interesting things came over here anyway. But, you know, we have to learn the culture that we are the product of here in this land. The way other countries teach, they teach their cultural heritages. We stop teaching it. So that's been another special interest of ours. And again, we've had so many people that have jumped in those courses to make them come alive with us. And that's what you do with kids. You've got to keep them excited. And I guess that's our number one goal. Well, they're accomplishing that quite handily. I really enjoy your blog. It's quite active. Your weekly columns offer really keen insights on issues of interest to classical education-minded families. I, I really have found your blog posts of late particularly interesting. And I can just go on and on delving deep into your writings. So much richness there. I really enjoy Hank's Friday performance picks that he sends. Those Let's are really fun. About that. He's up to 300 and I want to say, I don't know how many. He's been doing it for a long time. Every Friday. I think they're really fascinating how he will identify just, just to pick something for one thing. Like I said, that is some one of my sticking points is where do I start? And, and here this comes each week with an explanation, so much background and a link to a performance of it, that and, and his, like you were mentioning, the Music for Boys series, that and your series on you're doing one on hymnody now. I've got a great deal out of that webinar about hymnody that you hosted here recently. And your collaboration also with uh, Jim Weiss looks very interesting. I, I have some catching up to do, honestly. Don't we yeah. all? 
Oh, we all. Oh, that was fun because I love Jim Weiss. Oh, how I wish I'd had that resource coming up. I mean, my mother read to me, but it was a different time. And, you know, it was really a different era. And you read to children until they were grown up enough to read to themselves. And then it stopped. I mean, I don't think it would have ever occurred to her not to. I mean, she did a wonderful job, but it was like, okay, you read now. Bye, you know. And, and so Jim Weiss, his voice, clearly the family, the mom, the dad reading is your is your number one thing. But you can't. You can't always be there. Furthermore, it's really wonderful to hear these summaries, these things that he does in his CDs. Well, now, of course, online as well, where he has spent. I mean, you, he is so conscientious. He and Randy work so amazing over the many, many years. I would they have 80, 90 titles. I don't know how many. It's still producing them. Yeah. Um, and, and they've taken the classics of literature from all spectrums, from the lullaby age straight up to the things that our 12th graders, you know, need to know and our adults need to know. And he has been able to distill them with a purity and with a, I mean, he's been forever getting the voices and figuring out how he's going to do it. And the really works of art. Again, I didn't know of any of this raising my, my kids, but my grandchildren, I mean, Jim Weiss is, is their life, their happiest moment. And of course, they keep them off the screens. Don't get me started on the screens. I know we're all having to use, we're using a screen now to have our interview together, but you you know, you've got to keep them away. Their creative minds have got to be staying away. Like, like you've got to think of it as a burning hot fire that'll burn out their brains, if any more than absolutely necessary for children. Oh, golly, Ned, I get on that high horse terribly. I probably should say no more. And, you know, when they're listening to story or outdoors in the clouds or whatever, they are at full creative capacity. You know that that's not the case when their little eyes are hypnotized and glued to a screen. All right, I'll I stop. think <laughs> no, it's all such reassurance and really bolstering our resolve, I think, especially if we came to homeschooling with a feeling of we have to do this rather than here's what I'd like to do. And I feel deeply convicted. But I think for many folks here lately, it might be the case that they see this as possibly temporary, but maybe now they're seeing the fruits of it, having gone yes. through this year a bit. I think there's a lot yes. of that as well. But if they came into it, with any kind of hesitation or trepidation, hearing these repeated messages of, of encouragement is so, so helpful speaking personally. I have to wonder many times, and I've, I've thought about this, when I was a music major, every semester we had to attend a certain number of performances as just as part of our, our right. music. I forget how many, lots of them. That was before smartphones and I did have a cell phone but it was, you know, for calls. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I don't think we can, it was for emergencies, right? And it was, I mean, laughable now, I think. Anyhow, I can imagine what that would be like now with the distraction of phones that everybody has with them in a, in a setting like that when we are, and I, I see it, I mean, I, I make it to far fewer performances pre-plague times of, of live performances than I did at one time when I was in school and worked for the orchestra, of course. But I think that shift to having the phones with us all the time, that has really got to be quite the quagmire for developing the discipline of sitting and listening to a performance. Yes. So cultivating that sort of ability to actively listen like that. Exactly. I mean, exactly. You're right. And, and we have to fight I mean, we wouldn't let them not have vegetables or calcium or protein, right? We were real clear about that. And they need to take a bath occasionally, right? And they need to brush their teeth, you know. And we are also maintaining the health of their creativity and their imaginations and their concentration. And we really are in a war with the stimulus of the digital. We know how bad it is for us as adults if, you know, we fight it. You know, oh, they're in bed. I'm going to get on Facebook. I mean, it's very hard to fight the, you know, I mean, at a certain point, it's not interesting, but it, it, is, mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is a temptation. And and we can sort of as grownups say, well, okay, you know, if I haven't had 12 minutes to myself all day, I'm going to go do this. But all day we've been living and running. With children, it is it is a really, yes, I know wonderful things can happen and you can learn to program it. I can watch soccer from around the world and, and I can watch Chekhov plays. I keep mentioning Chekhov, somehow it's on my mind today. And I can do master classes. And actually we have a feature now in this called Composer of the Month, uh, which is a little different than you might expect because what we've done is integrated about 20 ingredients on uh, each one of these. And one of the things we're featuring is clips from or complete short vignettes from master classes where you 
you see master teachers, as you know, as a music person, you know, working with top singers and bringing the performance level from good to amazing, usually, sometimes it doesn't work, and workshops where you see. So, again, we're using vignettes from screens, but to do something very specific. And you see, to me, that's the key with kids in screen time. It, it's It's got to be illustrating or deepening or challenging something. And so it's it if it's not, and if it's a way that they're passing large blocks of time, it's it that's when it goes to the dark side, you know, even if it's the silliest thing in the world. And so 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 it's a marvelous resource. Just like having a, a gourmet cheese section in a refrigerator, you know, or something. It can be a marvelous resource. But you have to have a reason and it has to come into a question that's being asked. Well, let's go find I mean, my, my granddaughter's crazy about little fashion let's find out who coco chanel was anyway yes she was a real person look there's an interview of her but she's old grandma i know honey but she didn't used to be old let's listen to what she has to say oh grandma she speaks so beautifully well honey she's french and da, da, da. you know now we're doing something you see and we're there together and then i think it's magnificent but if the curiosity is not there in the first place you know none of that would come up and then after a few minutes you say okay we're done now you know, and, and I don't need to keep going back to that topic, but that you're the referee, you're the gatekeeper, you're the, the custodian, you know, you're doing all these roles, which surprises a lot of the new homeschool parents. It's not about now it's time for history, as you said. It's that complete integrated, and we call it, like to call it a classical approach, although there's more to that. And it's the continuous seeking out of the best possible material that is time-honored, that has always conveyed the best values, and making certain that you are, you know, fertilizing that root and strengthening it. And it doesn't matter what it looks like along the way. It won't look like some model. And it won't look like maybe what you think it ought to look like. But I will tell you, those kids are going to turn around and they're going to look at you in admiration and gratitude. And they are. They are. <laughs> they will. They will. They will. Someday. But hold on to that. So I really appreciate your perspective as a parent, as a grandparent, as an educator, a professor. All these perspectives are so informative. I think you have a view, you can zoom in it's very um, detailed level, but you can also have a big picture that we at this point can only hope for, right? What happens though when when we hit resistance to persisting? How hard do we push, whether it's applied lessons such as piano, trumpet, violin, whatever applied music lessons or the other parts of it? What do you think about that? Well, if you have a superbly, supremely talented kid, at three or four or five or six, you're going to know it. And then you push it. If you think that's what, you know, it's going to work to do that. If you've got a kid who's going to end up being a, a virtuoso violinist, you don't have to do a lot of pushing. You have to do some adjusting and some supporting uh, and getting maybe even moving to where there's a teacher that that child needs. That's a very different thing. For the basic kid where you want to lay the groundwork to an appreciation, understanding, a beauty of the arts, I think you have to be flexible, especially when you've got groups of children. You're not producing a concert pianist. You're not trying to produce ballerinas and actors. What you're trying to do is expose to the principles and beauty and excitement and discipline and rigor and history and culture of the arts. So when people often come up to me at conferences, you'd be surprised how much, you know, my Mary has taken, John has taken four, six, three years of piano. He's 12 now. He's 14 now. You know, he's bored to tears. He cries. You know, he's mad. I said, okay, why don't you take, go, for example, for example. Go forget the piano, take organ lessons, find a good organist and give them organ. Oh, what is cooler if you're 12 year old or for as long as your legs are long enough and you pick up the pipe organ. I mean, you talk about it's as good as a jet plane, you know, and I hear back from these moms and they go find a good organist if they're anywhere near a, a good or and, and suddenly not only that you make money, you can start playing weddings within a little bit of time and make some good money. And you've got this massive mechanical powerful force with all of the physics and science and beauty and excitement and you know of registering the colors and dealing with the mechanics so forget you know rather than fight the piano or give up the piano and do the trumpet or give up this and go do irish dancing or give up you know that and go do pen and ink or go do mat you know do pottery throw some pots uh not not real ones well maybe real ones you know um go 
find a different. If if this isn't working and you can't get somebody interested in Shakespeare, then find some kind of workshop where they go for two afternoons over a weekend and learn how to do a Shakespeare scene so that it becomes real. Okay, so don't do don't do A, B, or C or D, but go I go back to architecture. Architecture is amazing for kids. They walk in and out of buildings all day long. They don't know there's any principles. And maybe they have the math mind and the spatial, and they begin to understand the history of architecture. And you know, something's got to hold the roof up, you know. And from there, it all else goes. And don't feel trapped. If there's no reason to be trapped in a spot that's not working, if there's not some imperative, like Granny May will keel over if you give up violin. Let's give her another year. (laughs) She literally will fall over stone cold, Rebecca. We can't do that. This was her violin. I've promised her, you know, please, I'll, you know, I'll feed you caramels. I'll, I'll get you a puppy, whatever. And Granny May has that, you know, if there's no imperative, then be flexible and don't rule out the decorative arts. Don't rule out jewelry making, glass blowing, silversmithing, learn to make horseshoes. I don't care. Learn to build something. They are building things is also the art be flexible that's what i think yes and that echoes some advice we've gotten from veteran homeschooling moms before that the flexibility is key right up there among the things to keep in mind be flexible that's helpful well they have a long life one one hopes god willing nothing is more rewarding than okay you're not going to go back at 38 to become a virtuoso violinist but your love of violin that you might have dropped when you were 12 might still be there. And you may find yourself on the board of, of a chamber music group. You may find yourself, you know, just collecting beautiful recordings. You may find you don't know what you're going to find. And I think, again, here's where homeschool families. I think parents have a different view. I think homeschool moms, families, in my experience in these last decade of being around a lot of them, they think the people I know at least and have worked with, you're constantly looking at your three-year-old, your six-year-old, your nine-year-old and wondering what you are laying in terms of this, the foundation of their adulthood. That is always on your mind. And that's how children always were raised. I got to take Buddy down to the barn and show him how to milk his cows. He's going to need to do that when he gets grow, when he gets grown up at 15. You know, there was always this sense of, you know, when you're king, young man, you know, that's the classical, you know, and not this. Well, next year you're going to you're in kindergarten. You're getting a cap and gown and you're going to first grade. Spare me these cap and gowns, please, six times before they finally get out of <laughs> high school. I mean, come on, because we're, that, that's all well and good. And I mean, it's fine if you want to do it go ahead whatever but what you're building a human life and that's where homeschooling and homeschooling parents are focused and that's a divine job i mean it's a job that divinity has put in your hands and it is a long view and 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 that's part of what makes it so marvelous and so difficult well i certainly appreciate all these words of wisdom and encouragement that you've offered to the new and longtime homeschoolers listening in, newbies to classical education or otherwise. This has been such a gift to me and to all the listeners. Thank you so much. I'll include links to your website, professorcarol.com in our show notes, along with some articles I found informative. So thank you so much, Professor Carol. I so appreciate your time and all you have given us today. My pleasure. It's been really fun to be with you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you in person as soon as possible. Thank you so much. Likewise. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Admayorum Dei Gloriam.